Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Nate and Shelby Hansen, co-hosts of the Almost Heretical podcast. Thank you guys for joining me. This was actually one of the first shows that I listened to when I was kind of starting to unpack and rethink things in my faith. So it's uh, pretty meaningful to be here today. Well, that's that's meaningful for me to hear as well. Were the swear words a problem for you at the time? <laughs> no, it was actually pretty, uh, I felt like, oh, I can, this is just a safe space, which is funny. Yeah, no, you had reached out like a couple of years ago, I feel like, and just, you know, we took a pause on the show on Almost Heretical and then COVID and like all this stuff happened. And so I'm, I'm really glad that we're finally having this chat. So it's good to be here. Every once in a while, I try and get someone who also does a podcast that focuses more on the Bible than I do, because I'm just like... I'm not that interested in the Bible these days. I can't do without the Gospels. Like, I, I can't, I wouldn't want to live without the Bible, but I don't think about the Bible very often. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not a very good conduit for content about the Bible. And in fact, all our questions tonight, other than whatever I sort of come up with organically in response to you, everything is taken from patrons of You Have Permission. So this is fully listener question driven episode here, which I always am excited about because people have really, well, let's, let's just get the swearing going here. They have fucking great questions and uh, better ones than I would have thought to ask. So 
that's always fun as well. It's always like that moment when you know the episode got the E rating on, on I iTunes. Never, you know? I it's never right do it. I never do that. I should. Maybe Josh does it. I think he, well, he posts them now. We should maybe talk about that. Anyway, let's get a little <laughs> bit of background. So I know that some listeners also listen to your guys' show, Almost Radical. I'm sure plenty don't. So can you guys give us the Cliff's Notes on where you're coming from and, and why you started this show? And then maybe a little yeah. bit about how you got into this canon uh, miniseries. There was so many post-Christian or still Christian, but we're trying to figure it out type of shows out there. Kind of like this theme of like moving past the Bible, right? Because it's it's like, we're just not going to deal with it anymore. I don't yeah. know what to do with it anymore. And for people that still want to engage with it, there's that camp. But there's also this camp of people who like, it's still a significant book in people's lives, in this country, in the West, like whatever. Yeah. Like it's going to be in conversation, even if you don't know it is a lot of times. It's still... It's in the room, right? It's in the room with us, and we got to talk about it. And for people who grew up with it, it's still ingrained in you. Like even if you decide you want to move on, like there's you, you can't just you can't just move on. I mean, it's like any anything else that you grew up with that has you know it has a mix, good and bad, all of it. And you, yeah, I think people people don't want to just never think about it again. Well, maybe you, Dan, I don't know, but um, <laughs> no, no, I but think here we about are. It. So obviously not. No, I think you're totally right. There's like a psychological experiential lens you could train on that as well to say, look, this text, you know, like you said, it's foundational to the West. It's foundational to Western civilization, uh, you know, to our canon of literature, right? Like half of the, the great works of Western literature reference the Bible. And those of us, like you said, Shelby, we grew up, especially like in the evangelical context, for instance, that culture is so soaked with Bible passages generally out of context, but ever present, like a thick fog of humidity of scripture. And mm. like, if you don't figure out how you're going to engage with it, then you're essentially cutting yourself off from mm. that upbringing and, and maybe even some people that are, were a part of that. And that's okay. That's maybe a little strong for not everybody's story, but something like that. Well, and I mean, you mentioned like taking Bible verses out of context, right? Like another reason we exist at Almost Radical, like we say this all the time, you're not alone. You're not crazy. I mean, most of what we're doing is trying to give, it's not, it's not even like our audience cares as much about like you know, the canon or like these things we're talking about, but the, the people that they're interacting with still sometimes, you know, like whether it's on Facebook or, you know, around the Thanksgiving table or just, you know, like their friends and family, like they're still in that world. And so when they post something on, on Facebook, about, you know, their new, their new journey they're on or their new, what, like the pushback that they get, it's, it's in the form of Bible verses or yeah, Bible verses taken out of context, right? Or like yeah. things someone heard in a sermon Apologetics one time. Arguments. Yeah, exactly. And so like, yeah. we wanted to give these people resources. Cause I, I, my story was like, I'm a pastor, I'm like planting churches. And then I start to like question it. I mean, hell was first, right? And then I started reading like Rene Girard. I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's the book I read. But yeah, so I'm like teaching and then I start to question everything. So I'm like, okay, let me stop teaching and let me stop, you know, leading the church. I ended up moving back up to Portland where I'm from and uh, where we live now. And 
and just kind of like, <laughs> I, I got with Tim, who I used to do the show with, um, almost radical with, and just kind of was like, hey, like, what about the grace? Like, what about, like, I, don't know, I just went through like every topic, all these words that you hear, and you're just like, ah, this doesn't feel like it means anything to me anymore. Or like, I hear people using it like this, and I just don't know what to do with that. And he starts like, he's like the scholar guy, and he's like explaining stuff to me, and we're like breaking it down. I'm like, we should record this, right? So that's like what the show started from was yeah. me needing someone to like, help me because I'm getting all these, I, I start, I'm starting to change in what I think and my theology and my doctrine, all that kind of stuff, or like no doctrine, no theology. And yeah, you asked about the Canon series and that's sort of Shelby's bread and butter. I offered some mini courses a couple years ago and I'm hoping to start that up again. And one of the first ones that I knew I wanted to do was on Canon formation, which isn't, isn't even necessarily my specific area of expertise. I studied Dead Sea Scrolls and gender studies, but but in that, I became familiar with kind of the, the second temple period, that period between, you know, the technically the period of silence sort of in the, between the Old and New Testaments, which was not really a period of silence at all. But yeah, so I, I love the Bible and I have, I mean, my mom read it to us every morning at the breakfast table and just really instilled, I mean, we memorized so much of it, my sister and I. And I went to China for a few years teaching English and I was like the only Christian that I knew within the hours of subway commutes. And so yeah. I just just dug into the Bible and I just read it over and over and over again. And, you know, even at a relatively young age, like I had a pretty wide grasp of like, I mean, the the whole thing. And so, I mean, I, you know, not, try not, not trying to sound <laughs> arrogant about that. And obviously no, there's more, always more you can know. Yeah. So canonization was one of those things that I was like, I need to dig into this more. And then when I came out the other side, I was like, this is actually a much more beautiful way of looking at the Bible and using it. And I, I hope that we can change the way that we use the Bible. Shelby, help us by getting some sense of like a range of possible views on, let's call it God's involvement in the canonization of the Bible or the, what is included or, or whatever, you know, there's on one end, there's like, God is not involved. Maybe God doesn't exist. This is just people. And, you know, you could even probably have a more sinister version of like, it's a bunch of powerful men and, mm -hmm. you know, or church power and whatever, kind of a Da Vinci code view, we might call it. Yeah. Right. And then all the way on the other side is probably whatever you're taught at a Baptist theological seminary which is something like God micromanaged uh, which books made it in and only the Protestant list is the right one. And uh, maybe we'll give the Catholics like a little pass because they don't quite consider the Apocrypha the same. There's an inerrancy layer there where God ensures that the correct books are in and the incorrect books are out. And therefore, we don't need to have any worries and no uncertainties are creeping in. So if those are the poles, what are like some things in between on the spectrum of, of possible ways you might think about God's involvement? Okay, first, Dan, I got to ask. So when you imagined inspiration like, like years ago, how did you think it happened? Was it like God controlling the quill of someone? Like what did you, what did you actually picture? I'm taking the view of like the Southern Baptist Seminary view. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I thought of it like a person writing a journal entry and God mm. is speaking to them, probably audibly. Ah. 
and they are oh, like wow. they're hearing the audible voice of God and writing it down. That is, I think, what I initially thought. I think I subconsciously thought that you know the people writing somehow they knew that they were writing scripture, and maybe that's the most subconscious idea that that was flipped for me, and that I feel like is so important to just constantly still go back to this, that the people who wrote this did not intend for it, it to be used the way that it's now being used or by, by a lot of people. I mean, there are, there are great ways to use it. And obviously literature can develop in the way that it's used, but, but that these people didn't, weren't writing scripture when they were writing it. But like, you can believe that the Bible is inspired and that God is involved that doesn't have to mean that certain things are also true. Like, that doesn't also have to mean that every word of it is authoritative and, like, straight from the mouth of God and that He intended every word, He, she, it. And, yeah, I don't know that I have a solid answer to the question as much as that you could you could believe that God was involved. I mean, even just the word inspired doesn't—we don't have a definition for what that means. The verse that, of course, we go back to is all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And God-breathed is also often translated inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God. That word in Greek, theoponoustos, is scholars don't have any attestation to that word anywhere in Greek literature before that letter. Wow. So, essentially, scholars think that Paul probably made up the word. And it's theoponoustos, which is theos means God, and ponoustos means breath, spirit, wind, all of these things. And so, probably Paul or whoever wrote that document was writing about Scripture. It was like, ah, how do I describe this? Like, what's a word that yeah. really like gets the oomph behind how important these texts are to to our culture, which, of course— at the time writing this, they would have been referring to Hebrew, Jewish literature. There was no Christian canon at that time. So, all that to say, like, inspired, we just assume it means, like, dictated, kind of like we were talking about earlier. But that's not what it means in any other context. Like, if we say that, you know, I was inspired to do gymnastics by Carly Patterson in the 2004 Olympics. Like, that's just a completely different use of the word inspired. And mm-hmm. so, maybe that is another one of those positions that you can take on this is like God could inspire it, but what does inspire mean? And and there's a whole range of, of ways that you can look at that. But then I do think all the way back from uh, to the first poll that we mentioned, even to the idea that maybe God was just not involved at all. Um, for, for people that feel like that is probably just more where they sit. It doesn't have to be like this, you know, sad kind of man, this is just a bunch of words that doesn't mean anything anymore. Like, And that's, I think, what has kept me still motivated to want to be involved and study this text is because no matter who wrote them and no matter how God was or was not involved, there are real human beings from real times and places thousands of years ago who put wisdom and history down on paper and on parchment and that's somehow been valuable enough to make it all the way here. So, we can go into this conversation knowing that these texts are are valuable, regardless of what the divine influence is. I'm going to get into the listener questions now. Is there any reason to believe that the process of canonization was, at any point, guided or limited by specific foundational criteria? Or is that entire notion bullshit? So, this is different than asking God's role, 
This is asking, as some people learn in Bible school or elsewhere, who was the author? Were they an apostle? It's how long was it? It's what, you know, they give this list of criteria. I'm sure there are multiple lists that people Mm -hmm. have heard. What this person is asking is like, are any of those lists actual or is that basically apologetics filling in a hole? Um, that's a great question, and I will point to one of my one of my favorite resources on the topic for people who want to get into it a little bit deeper is a book called A High View of Scripture by Dr. Craig Allert from Trinity Western. It's it's written for like an evangelical audience, and he's basically his argument is like if we're gonna claim to have a high view of Scripture, we should be able to be completely transparent about the way it was formed. Hmm. So uh, it's a really really good book and he gets into those details a lot more. So what I've picked up from from him is that those those criteria, so things like like you mentioned, um apostolicity is is what's the author and apostle. Orthodoxy, is it something that the majority of Christians in every whoever's in this council, whatever council you're talking about, do we believe that this upholds Christian orthodoxy? Catholicity was one. So is it, which means kind of, does it address the universal church or is it just specific to one congregation? So obviously the letters of Paul, they had to kind of decide, you know, even though this is written to the Romans, we believe that it's like addresses Christians universally. Interesting decision that they had to make there. Do I agree with all those decisions? Not necessarily. Yeah. But were there criteria? Yes. And I mean, it may not have been as black and white as we learn it in an apologetics class, but we do have um, lots of letters back and forth between early church fathers, even in the second and third century. So, that, so there was a real process going on of what things are going to be in and what things are going to be out. And they were very intentional about that because they were trying to um, suppress heresy and a lot of the heretical parts of, well, what they did deemed her- heretical. It's not all uh, smoke and mirrors. Like, I learned it as probably in something like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, which I was uh, required to read in my evangelical high school. I think the way that he describes it is like, here were the four four criteria, you know, and it's like, it's very overly simplified. It brings in an interesting, like, tautology, A equals A, because who determines what is heresy? (laughs) Especially before you have either a final canon of scripture or even a like high priest Pope, like for how many years after the death and resurrection of Jesus around 35, for how long is there essentially nobody in charge other than who can marshal the best argument? Yeah. I mean, it depends on where you are. Like if you're in Jerusalem, then Peter and and James are, are in charge. In charge, and if you're you know up in the more Gentile areas, then Paul. I mean, Paul's influence is sort of in charge. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're right. It's all just led by these very small congregations, and and they don't have texts for the most part, which I think is just fascinating. Totally. But then as they do, it's just like, oh wow, this is helpful. But you're right. And so those criteria that we just mentioned, like those weren't necessarily held tight and fast because you have a book like Hebrews that doesn't have an author at all. So clearly that doesn't satisfy the criteria of apostolicity. Was it written by an apostle? And then, I mean, 
we're basically, we're just assuming that Paul gets to count as an apostle, which I personally disagree with, but yeah, that would yeah. change the <laughs> entire Christian religion dramatically. It would. This is this describes our relationship, by the way, Shelby, Shelby and me. We were out to dinner the other night, just the two of us, no kids, we're eating, and our whole conversation is, and I loved it, by the way, this is, this, yes. this, this, this is what I mean, it describes the relationship in that I love this and this is what she likes to talk about. She was going through and creating her own canon and saying which books are out, which books are in, and... I mean, spoiler, the only ones that were left were the Gospels. Well, and even then, then I just decided that I don't think the canon should exist at all. So, I was like, well. Yeah, by the end of the night, there was no canon. But anyways, uh, continue. Sorry. And I am still here, everyone. I just, I'm not the brains of the operation, right? I'm the question asker on Almost Heretical. So, I'm just enjoying this conversation. So, keep talking, Shelby. I mean, it's great. I We, we like having you here. And that's a, a very funny anecdote that gives us a window into your marital life, which I appreciate. <laughs> One lens that I have been really interested in, um, the credit goes to Trip Fuller of Homebrewed Christianity for introducing this idea to me. And there's going to be a You Have Permission event, which I'm sure will have been announced by the time this comes out in March. And this is the theme of that event is Christianity as a wisdom tradition. And there's a lot of interesting mm. facets of sort of that lens. But I think canon formation is of particular interest. If you take a wisdom tradition lens rather than an inspiration in the sort of top-down inspiration, mm -hmm. like God is ensuring a certain outcome, but rather something more like, hey, in an attempt for this religious tradition to find wisdom and helpful things and things that have proven effective over multiple generations, maybe in like the Catholicity thing, has this been helpful in multiple geographical areas of the known world? If so, that's a better criterion than like, oh, the Syriacs love this shit, but nobody else seems to find it that helpful. That's good to know. Like as a wisdom tradition, as a, a organic, you know, almost like a pre-scientific peer review process, you know, a, a grandpa mm -hmm. explaining to a grandkid the things they learned writ large over thousands and thousands and thousands of iterations all under the banner of Christianity. What do you think about mm. training that lens on this topic? As soon as you say wisdom tradition, obviously I think of Judaism. And I mean, I almost chuckled when you said Christian wisdom tradition, because I just, I still kind of think of Christianity as this like up and coming young sprout who's trying to yeah. make it seem like they're just as big of a deal as everybody else is. But, you know, like Christianity is one of the youngest major religions, obviously Islam, slightly younger. But yeah, and Christianity kind of piggybacked off of a nice off big one. Judaism, yeah. And then when you take the lens of canon with that kind of comparing Judaism and Christianity, I mean, it's just so, you realize how insane it is that the Christian New Testament is filled with documents that are, were all written within a hundred years at best, basically. Yeah. And how, the, I mean, Christian wisdom tradition, like there, there's been Christian wisdom and literature for the last 2,000 years. And and in a tradition like Judaism, those things slowly as they become, you know, more widespread and more well-read and more integrated into cultural life, and then they slowly kind of become this cultural, more and more sacred and more and more authoritative, and that's how Scripture is formed organically. I mean, to, to steel man it a little bit, 
you know, if the final canon decisions are being made in the fourth century, right? I mean, there's no such thing as final canon decisions. Okay, well, yeah, but the the big ones that, you know, uh, the ones that end up having, carrying the most weight or whatever. Sure, sure. You know, so it's more like a 300-year period than a 100-year period in terms of, that's still pretty good. Like, if somebody started doing something that worked really well in 1720 and they were still doing it today like i'd be pretty confident about that like that's a pretty (laughs) good amount of time for something to be considered wise but you're right that it it pales in comparison to judaism uh the texts as i understand them written over more like a thousand or even 1200 years Mm -hmm, depending mm -hmm. on how far back and how far up you date things like Daniel and Job and stuff like that. There was a question from a couple listeners about this Jewish perspective on Christian canonization or just the Hebrew Bible. And I know you didn't pick it as one of your favorite questions, but now we're here organically. So I'm going to ask it and you can add whatever you'd like to add. So this person said, I'd like to hear a bit more about the Jewish perspective on canonization how or if it influenced Christian canonization? Because obviously there was some, what what was the Jewish canon at the time of the Christian canon decisions? There definitely is a, a solidifying at that time of certain documents being more authoritative and more considered scripture than others. And there was no, but like at the time that Jesus came on the scene, there's still no canon. There's no Hebrew Bible. So all scripture, which is God-breathed and usable for mm-hmm. teaching, is like, what counts? Which books right. count as all scripture? We don't know. Nobody agreed. N- there was no firm agreement on that, is what you're saying. Yeah. Well, there was firm agreement on some, and then less firm on others. The Torah, so, you know, I think, the Psalms, right? Yeah. yeah. So clear, yeah, the Torah, the Psalms, um, most of the prophets, like a lot of, most of the texts that we would, like, I don't want to okay. overstate yeah, the picture. Yeah. Most of the texts that we would call the Old Testament were fairly authoritative by that point. But I mean, you know, as someone, like the text of, of Ruth was probably not considered like, this is essential to Jewish daily life, you know? Yeah. But they had a real spectrum of authority. And what's interesting is that some texts, um, like the Book of Jubilees that most of us have never heard of, that was actually a fairly authoritative text, a text almost up with Genesis, some would say, which is, I mean, you can't really beat Genesis. Um, so, so the the process of canonization for the Hebrew Bible did also have an interesting development that something like the Book of Jubilees wouldn't end up in it. But all that to say, go dig into it more. I don't know all of the things on it, but I'm sure it did play in with Christian canon. Yeah. Okay, let's pick another question here. This person asked, I'm curious what disqualified the books of the Apocrypha from inclusion in the Protestant Bible, and what are we missing without them? Oh, thank you, whoever asked this question. Um, The simple answer, if we go back to Martin Luther, he, from what I understand, wanted the Bible to be the most, you know, accurate and reliable. And in his mind, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, those were ancient texts. And like, if their original text was not in Hebrew, then it was a later document. And for him, the later documents just weren't as authoritative, essentially. And I'm sure there's a lot more to it, but he felt like the Old Testament should just be these ancient Hebrew documents. 
the books that are no longer in there, a lot of them are written in Greek. So like Judith or Tobit or a few, some of the chapters of Daniel. What I think is really interesting, um, I, to bring up the book of Tobit, I just mentioned, which most of us have probably not heard of. And if you have read it, honestly, not, not a life-changing document. <laughs> but it was believed to be written in Greek. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they actually discovered Hebrew and Aramaic copies of Tobit. So, I think it's just incredibly interesting that, you know, if the Dead Sea Scrolls had been discovered before Martin Luther, Tobit would still be in the Protestant Bible. I love that because it just shows this is such a human process. Well, and like, what are we going to dig? You know, I just go to like, like, people are still digging, right? We're still digging. I know, this was less than 100 years ago. What if, yeah, what if we find something else and it's like, oh, shoot, that should have been. But like, the way we approach you know, Christianity, the canon, like these texts, and that's like, that's why this word inspiration or infallible, inerrant, like that's why these are so important is because, and, and how we define them, because if we were to dig something up, I don't think the church today, the church in the West, they're not going to put that in, they're not going to treat that with any kind of authority, right? It's this heretical book that, you know, it's interesting, but it's this, you know, it's this book outside extra Christian book that we're not going to put in our Bibles. I think one of those questions that you had from one of your listeners was about what if, say, you know, yeah. the, the letter to the church in Laodicea was discovered or the Q source was mm. discovered or something like that. Would we add those to the canon? And I actually asked um, Dr. Allert, the author of that book that I mentioned, I asked him that question about one of those, either the letter to Laodicea or this Q source. I, don't know, I guess those are the most interesting ones. And I thought his answer, answer was interesting, which was essentially that the canon as we have it today, the New Testament, it is more than the sum of its parts at this point because of the 2,000 years that of history and of interpretation that have gone into it. And I mean, this is a, a guy who's very open to, like, I, I didn't feel like I was getting some kind of evangelical pushback at no, all. No, I understand. But yeah, he was just yeah. acknowledging that, like, we've put in thousands of years of understanding these these texts in in ways that have addressed different issues for centuries. And to bring a new text into that, like, it, it just wouldn't be the same canon anyway. I don't know if I 100% agree with that. But then again, I also, you know, my new my new catchphrase is that the Bible doesn't exist. Like, I don't really believe in the canon at all. Like, I think <laughs> I like we that. just need to blow apart all of this and realize that these are all texts to be used in different ways. And if we discovered Q source, um, like, that would be incredible and would... I mean, I guess if I don't, I don't necessarily hold to, you know, these texts being inspired in a, a divine way, at least not in a way that has to mean a certain level of authority. And so then if we were to, to discover one of these other texts, like uh, there's no threat in that for me. Yeah, the stakes are lower. Like if it was like, hey, Dan, we just found out that Paul also said this, I would be like, Cool. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I, I don't think anything is required of me as a result of that, except it, it would be wise of me to read it and consider it. It's actually funny. Like, if you think of wisdom tradition on one side and inerrancy on the other as a kind of a continuum, the argument for inclusion of a newly unearthed letter is much stronger for the inerrantist. Mm. Because it would be like, yeah. well... 
Paul wrote this. If it fits the criteria. If it fits the criteria, it's apostolic. It's, you know, as long as the, you know, whatever it seems to be teaching is in line with basic Christian doctrine, like, you'd think that that would be a pretty good argument. Now, they might say, well, yeah, but God sort of decided which if ones If it wasn't we in get. the canon yeah, already, yeah. then God probably didn't put it there on purpose. But the wisdom yeah. tradition person would be like, I don't know, ask me in 300 years <laughs> if that one <laughs> yeah. is still good. Like, that would actually urge more caution because, well, does it work? Yeah, and if it works, I mean, what is you know, what does that even mean? Like, I think of when I was first kind of becoming familiar with canonization and starting to go, wait, what were some of these texts that weren't included? Like, we talk a lot about the ones that were, but what about the ones that weren't? And, you know, there's something like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of yeah. Judas, or there's the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. And most of the response I got when I asked about those was that they were these, you know, Gnostic Gospels. And I was like, oh, well, okay, Gnostic Gospels, of course those are bad. Get and then those so out like, of here. <laughs> well, what, you know, the only reason those are necess- are considered bad is because they weren't Orthodox. And then like you mentioned before, like, what is Orthodoxy? But someone's, I mean, I, you know, am I here saying that there's no truth and that we just are, I, I don't know, maybe, or maybe we just can't know, but... But I mean, that is where wisdom tradition comes in. It's this. It's not about figuring out what's right and wrong. It's about figuring out what are the implications of of things as as they go. And I mean, I haven't seen Gnosticism starting any wars lately, so maybe we should revisit that. See what it was all about. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the second half of that initial question was, what are we missing without the books? You already said we're not missing much from the one that was maybe actually written in Hebrew after all. Mm-hmm, Tobit. Tobit. But what yeah. about the rest of them? You could talk to, I'm sure, scholars of, you know, Ben Sira and First and Second Estrus, and they're going to tell you so many things. The ones that I happen to know about, because as I mentioned, my I studied um, gender studies in relation to biblical studies. So, if you're going to look into anything, go read the book of Judith and also um, the extra chapter on the book of Daniel, known as um, Daniel and Susanna. And uh, let's just say, Judith, if you think Esther is a cool female heroine in the Bible, Judith is so much more. I mean, you just suddenly realize like, wait, all Esther does the whole time is just do what the guys tell her to do. And Judith essentially saves Israel by literally going by herself into the enemy camp and chops off the head of the enemy leader, brings it back. Everyone wants to marry her. And she says, no, end of story. What? And I'm like, ah, so I, I mean, I do believe that that that's significant that girls, so many Christian Protestant girls yeah. have never heard that story yeah. and have never had that figure. Like literally the part that I read about how she was, well, she was a widow. She was the most beautiful woman and everyone wanted to marry her. And she did said no to all of them. Like something when I read that as an adult, I was like, wow, like I've never had a Christian figure like that. Yeah. So that's one. The other one which is equally, if not more powerful, is this Daniel and Susanna figure. It's in the book of Daniel. It's basically about Daniel, but the, there's a woman named Susanna who's the wife of a, an elder in Israel, and she's essentially assaulted by these two priests who want to rape her. And And she, she screams, and people run in, and they say, oh, she was, she was, like, they accuse her of trying to have, like, yeah, all the that. time, a defenseless woman tries to seduce mm-hmm. two men at once, you know, <laughs> yeah. just like always mm-hmm. happens. Anyway. Exactly. So, anyway, they take her to court, like, before the the elders of Israel, and they're condemning her, and she's going to be convicted, and she cries out to God, and then it says, you know, God basically 
speaks to Daniel or somehow connects with Daniel. I don't know, trans, who knows? And Daniel separates the two and interviews them and basically proves that their story is false and that Susanna has been wrongly accused and saves her. I mean, in an age of the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, to have a story where God comes and saves the woman who was falsely accused by religious wow. leaders when wow. they assaulted her. Like, we have nothing like that yeah. in, in the rest of the Bible. You know, take that out. Like, this idea of... You know, these books are are out of... The, I mean, Martin Luther, and you, you, you say this all the time, like, Martin Luther wasn't saying, like, don't read these books. Yeah, he actually said... Lock these, them up. He said these are good and useful and should continue to be read. Like, he didn't think they were heretical or anything. So, you should have still heard that story. Like, even if it's not in our canon, like, when was the last time that was preached in a Protestant church? Yeah, he essentially just... Martin Luther created an apocrypha, and then at some point, the Protestants stopped publishing it in the collection. Huh. Well, I wonder if Nate, part of what motivated that eventuality that you described is that for Protestants, the stakes are so high around eternal, you know, what (laughs) eternal destination they're high around, uh, inspiration and inerrancy and all this stuff. And so like, why would you like, there's free Coca-Cola over here. Why would you drink that watered down one that mm. the ice melted in it? Yeah, but you think, like you mentioned with Church 2, Me Too, these things are popping up on the scene. Hey, we have this, like our Christian leaders, I don't think they know that story, right? No. So, like, they should know that story. And when these types of events are happening, the whole point was that we have, you know, we have these resources to draw on and we're not drawing on them, right? Like, we should have a story. We should have... Message, messaging around this other than just, you know, this is wrong or whatever, but, or defense, there's that, which that happens a lot, right? In the church two movement, this defense from these powerful Christian leaders. But like, we have these resources, we should it'd just be awesome, right? If like this was, the church was the leaders here in this. And um, what's crazy is to me is how these texts like Judith, Susanna, Tobit, like they've been, they've been part of Christian tradition for, I mean, essentially the entire time, but they were part of the, the Christian Bible for 1,500 years before Martin Luther showed up. Like, if you were to just Google, like, art of Judith or Susanna, like, there's Renaissance paintings of the, like, this was part of if knowing the Bible was knowing these stories until very recently. One of those things where you realize, like, our current tradition is not very old. Next question. Are there any ongoing discussions about removing any books from the canon? I'll add. Adding any books? I would guess not. Mm. Or, more to the point, have any books been removed from the canon, other than the Luther Apocrypha stuff? If you go to the things like the Codex Sinaiticus or Codex Vaticanus, some of these earliest actual books with a bunch of New Testament texts in them, like not scattered parchments, but somebody actually put together an actual book of the New Testament and Old Testament, some of them. You do find a few texts like the Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas, and those texts um, slowly fell out of use. Like, I don't know that there was ever some council that decided, like, we don't like this text anymore. It was just just kind of disappeared. Um, so, those are a couple other maybe texts that were sort of removed, but I don't think since Martin Luther. I mean, other than the dis- essentially the disappearance of the Apocrypha from the Protestant Bible. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have an ongoing discussion about 
which books should be removed from the canon, as we mentioned. I think we need to get a little look into that dinner time, that, you know, hot date dinner time conversation between <laughs> yeah. the two of you. Give, give us some Cliff's notes. I mean, I really think that the eyewitness part kind of matters, like that you should have actually experienced being with Jesus in sure. order to be considered like one of those people. I'm not saying that if you weren't an eyewitness, what you have to say doesn't matter, but just that you maybe shouldn't be considered one of the foundational this yeah. is what the I mean, Christian religion is all about. There's common sense to that, for sure, right? You were there. I see where this is going. <laughs> the other person wasn't <laughs> yeah. there, you know? Okay. So, Martin Luther did not say this. Martin Luther said this about the Apocrypha. I am saying it about the letters of Paul, which would be my Apocrypha, because I think that they are good and useful, most of them, and I don't know that they should have been as influential as they have been, because Paul didn't meet Jesus. And I feel like that's pretty important. So, that cuts most of the New Testament right there, puts it into the Shelby Apocrypha. So, as we mentioned, we kind of gave it away earlier. I really come back to the Gospels, but then even within the Gospels, I mean, they all, they, each one has its own history. And, you know, the, the Gospel of John is by far more elaborate than yeah. the others in a way that, you know, they weren't they weren't making things up. Like, we don't have a good modern concept for what they were doing because um, we think, you know, if you're adding things that didn't, you don't know for sure happened, then you're basically lying. And that's not how an ancient author would write. Yeah. Essentially, yeah, if you look at the Gospel of Mark, like, that's the, the shortest, most to the point, earliest written. So, like, I mean, am I going to bring my canon all the way down to Mark? At that point, yeah, why have a, a canon necessarily? Let me push back a little bit on the Shelby rules. I mean, I, yeah, I agree that it. if you're doing a gospel, eyewitness is important. But the gospel accounts are written by one person using a ton of sources, including yeah. various eyewitness accounts, Q if it's oral uh, tradition. Luke and, and um, Matthew, oral tradition, right? So... It's not like, uh, and and also we don't know who wrote them, right? Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they I mean they have names attributed, names, but that but, was a normal practice at the time. Which again, just to yeah. this that was you know I mentioned at the beginning these little cycles that I would often go through of like if anyone out there is going wait what those those weren't actually written by those people like you know the, if it says the gospel according to Mark I mean it could have been Mark writing it like that's that isn't a possibility but often authors would attribute their writing to someone who essentially they were writing like in their spirit or in honor of them mm-hmm. or in the same way that they would which is maybe the best example of that is first second Timothy and Titus are written in the it says that they are written by Paul but scholars are fairly unanimous on that that, that they were not written by Paul but they were written in kind of his name. That's not ancient forgery. They weren't trying to deceive anyone. It was just normal practice of the day. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff is so interesting. I wonder like if we are doing our own canon, you know, inclusion criteria, I like the wisdom tradition lens. The problem with it is there's no way to do a a counterfactual of, you know, if other books had happened to have more copies in circulation or, you know, like all these factors, but over some amount of time, you will get some culling. Like you mentioned the shepherd of 
Hermes and uh, the other one that like, it's not that nobody had them. It's just that like they didn't do much for people and they kind of stopped using them. Like that's a good example of the wisdom tradition Mm. operating is that Mm -hmm. it, it becomes a sort of practical thing. Uh, If a bunch of people end up finding this useful, it sticks around. And if they don't, it doesn't stick around and people don't copy them and you know, whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. So you lose it. And that would be its own kind of criteria, which is different than what you're talking about and would yield, mm-hmm. I don't know, some different results than, well, Mark's the best because Mark is the closest and the most terse and least flowery in its descriptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mark might be the best for one purpose, but it's not going to be the best for another purpose. We, I feel like we use the word canon now to a synonymous with collection, but actually canon means standard. Like a canon is something by which you compare other things. And, you know, I can see how that is important. And, you know, and that's why they originally were trying to create a canon so that they could determine what's heresy and what is not. But if you're functioning on the wisdom tradition side of things, then the the standard by which you measure something is really just time, I guess. Like, does it work? And does it, is it contradictory to the things that we've already determined do work? And, I, and you have to be flexible with it, even though that's going to be scary. And I think that really is ultimately what what is behind the, the urgency behind needing a canon and needing this inerrant, infallible, unchanging document is that it's safer. It feels more stable. I mean, to have a tradition that's constantly changing could go any direction like that, you know, to a fundamentalist you know, child inside of me. Like that, that's, that sounds insane. That sounds wishy-washy. It sounds, you know, how do you even know you're going the right direction? But I think that that's what humanity is. is. I think people want to believe that like, that's not what we have. And like, so let's not change this and let's get all wishy-washy now. It's like, that's what, <laughs> that's what this thing is that we even have in front of us. You know, this, just cause it's bound with, you know, and there's leather, fake leather around it. Like that does not mean that it's, it was this stable thing. Like that's what's so important about this conversation. I think like it's not untouched by humanity and, and time. It's just given a different status. The most recent patron-exclusive episode of this show, I think the best way to say it is it has to be heard to be believed. Trip Fuller of Homebrewed Christianity invited me out to participate in Theology Beer Camp um, back in the fall. And on the opening night, uh, I first led, like co-led a game with Trip where he goes through and talks about all the speakers for that weekend um and (laughs) and he gives his little like 30 second description it's a little bit of a gamified thing but then i host a panel and the panel is with grace jisun kim adam clark and aaron simmons now aaron simmons has been on you have permission as well as he's been on pretty good vibrations which we recorded right after that camp um, and I've interviewed Aaron before on Reconstruct, my old podcast, but I didn't know Grace very well. I'm sort of familiar with her work. Anyway, it was, uh, I don't really know how to describe it. It was chaotic. It was the most difficult 
time I've ever had keeping a panel or a conversation on track. It was also very funny. And I think you guys will really like listening to it. Uh, it will be, I guarantee, unlike any other episode of You Have Permission, or including the patron episodes, which do tend to be a bit wider in scope and topic and tone. But this one was a unicorn. So uh, join the Patreon to hear it. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. It's five bucks a month. You also get access to the patron-only Facebook group and a whole history of patron-exclusive episodes, which you can listen to. You'll get a, a feed for your podcast player when you sign up. All right. Back to this really fun conversation with Nate and Shelby. So if you hold a view like we are talking about tonight, just like a consensus scholarly understanding of the very messy uh, way that books are included or not included, a standard view of how spotty those criteria were. They were sometimes applied, not always the same ones by the same people. Different councils had different criteria. Some books don't appear to meet the criteria that they said, but they stick in anyway. Right. So you take all that. How high of a view of inspiration fits with that? Can you be a full-on Chicago statement inerrantist, no errors in history, no errors in doctrine, no errors in, in matters of fact of any kind? Can you do that? Or are you relegated to other rungs of this sort of inspiration, infallible inerrancy ladder? I think you can believe like essentially any level of inspiration you want to believe i'm not trying to sound condescending but like there's no proof of inspiration there there is none and that's actually to bring it back to my intro rels class where that professor brought up inspiration he pointed out that it's actually better that the christian canon is not based on inspiration because if it was it would just be like how would you prove that it would be just whoever speaks loudest, right, would win that argument or whatever. So other right. criteria are better than, but this one was inspired by God, duh. Well, how do you, I mean, you know, so it's it becomes a, a circular, never-ending conversation where guy A mm -hmm. says that James is inspired by God and guy B says, no, it's not. And how do you adjudicate that? You can't ask God. One guy says, God told me. How do you, like, you just go down yeah, the list. Exactly. You can never... Mm -hmm. That's really interesting how he framed that. Yeah. So you can, like, I guess that's how, how I've been phrasing it recently, is that you absolutely can believe. And, and, and I don't know. I mean, God may very well have been very involved. If God is anything like I grew up thinking God was, then God knew that we would potentially be sitting here having this conversation today. I don't, I don't know if I really believe that but like you you can 100% believe that god was involved in in everything it could be from that god was just involved in like creating the events that led to the writings of these documents you could believe that god was involved in the very words that ended up on the page but i think it's essentially a matter of choice and i think for a lot of people like that is going to feel unconvincing and i think that's why for people like me and Nate we have ended up pretty far to the other side of the spectrum of feeling like this is probably a, a largely human document, or at least we don't have any convincing reason to believe that God was 
incredibly involved. And actually, we have a lot of convincing reasons to kind of hope that maybe God wasn't involved in some of these, some of the more harmful parts of the Bible. Yeah. Does it mess with your ability to be confident that, that like, like, so, okay, God was not sort of overtly, we might say, or coercively involved in canon formation. Was God involved in Jesus's life? Mm. I think it's, I guess, similar to even what I was saying about God's involvement in canonization. And I don't, I mean, I don't have answers. I don't even have a position on, like Jesus specifically is probably the place where I most don't have Mm. something that I necessarily think yet. But I do think that it's one of those things where you, like, you could probably believe God was as involved as you want him to be, which again, sounds kind of wishy-washy and unstable, which is probably why I haven't formed an opinion. You could see God as behind it all and behind, you know, miracles and, and rebellion and resurrection. Or you could see Jesus as a, a rabbi who had an incredible vision for humanity that was kind of taken off course by young zealots who thought it was more than it was. I I don't know. I mean, you can believe that Jesus is one of the truly enlightened religious figures of human history. I mean, that's undeniable. And then that he was killed by some combination of the state and however else you want to sort of describe that. And if you take sort of the consensus view of the historical Jesus scholarship, as I understand it, it's basically like, yeah, these are the kinds of things that Jesus of Nazareth pretty much did and said. This is the kind of Mm -hmm. guy he was. You know, not to bring it back to Lee Strobel, I guess, in case for Christ, but like, you know, there early, many early Christians died for their claims of what they believed about Jesus. And, and I don't, I don't want to ignore that. You know, yeah. So I'm, I am careful to like not get too much into the academic, like often very skeptical, often take it back to ground zero mm-hmm. and assume nothing. I mean, sometimes I do, I get there, but basically I, I'd still love that no matter, no matter where I end up with who I think Jesus was, um, like you were saying, he was clearly one of the most important figures of all time. And I mean, all I have to do is read the Sermon on the Mount yeah. to to go, I don't, this is my my favorite teacher. This is, though, if I was going to line up my life to, with anyone's teachings, I would want it to be his. And I know because, you know, I've had it in my Facebook comments, like that's not enough for a lot of people. It's sure. kind of the liar, lunatic, or Lord thing. For, oh gosh, and, I hate that argument. And, you know, yeah. he can't just be a teacher but like you, you have permission to, to see Jesus as a teacher and, and then see what kind of divine influence maybe we, we come to, or we feel like is true. But like, even if Jesus was just the greatest teacher of all time, like that's still valuable and you're allowed to start there. Thank you for giving my listeners permission. Just you heard it guys directly from Shelby. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that that's really beautiful and well said. I think that if anything, what the canonization messiness does for me is it confirms some suspicions about the way that church authority and power might tend to work, you know? 
But that is quite different than the experiences of the first Christians and the people who mm-hmm. who saw Jesus while he was alive on the earth. And I think that is why I love the, like, I, I just want the Gospels. And even when we get to Paul, I start to get wary. Mm-hmm. Because even once we get to Paul, there's already power dynamics. I mean, I guess there's already power dynamics. Even before Jesus died, there were disciples were already vying for leadership. So, yeah. I think a lot of people write off the, like, oh, you know, you just think that it was all just a bunch of powerful men who were trying to, you know, people are like, oh, you can't just say that. But, like, there is an element in which, and especially as someone doing gender studies, like, there are texts out there with women prominent that didn't make it in the canon. And I can't help but wonder, you know, are those not prominent because nobody wanted to read them and therefore they were not circulated? I mean, what happened to Mary Magdalene, one of the most prominent followers of Jesus who disappeared after the Gospels, never appears in the rest of Acts or the New Testament letters of Paul? Why wasn't she one of the leaders of the church? That is such a great question. I no longer believe that in heaven I get to ask a thousand questions or whatever, (laughs) but that would be a really good one at the top of the list to ask. We talk about that. We talk about Mary Magdalene. We talk about the woman who anoints Jesus in um, the first series, actually, that Shelby ever did on this radical a few months back, the woman series. And like, yeah, her talking about the woman who anointed Jesus, which it says in the text, like when you share the, when you tell the gospel, wherever the gospel is preached, you're going to talk about, this will be told (laughs) in memory of her. And how, and we've just had this, we, we, we uh, said on the show, we're like, how many times we have heard the gospel it's not in there. How many times I've preached the gospel, and it's like, well, that's yeah, not essential. I don't need to talk about that. But like for some reason, that was essential to whatever Jesus felt the gospel was, <laughs> whatever the good news was. This woman and what she did was significant in that, and we never have to say it. So it makes you wonder: Is the gospel that we have, the good news that we have, that we think is so essential here in Protestant, you know, evangelicalism in, in the United States, is that actually the good news? <laughs> I love that, Nate. One brief thought just to go circle back a little bit to, well, technically you can have any view of inspiration you want and hold this messy view of the canon. Don't you think that the what's really the issue for people who want to have a higher view of scripture is that it's not so much that you are claiming something that technically lines up with their view of scripture I think it's more that like you're letting in the wrong scholars. You aren't protecting the fort. You're welcoming people into the walled city who might be traitors or enemies. And that's like, I think really what's going on. It's like, well, where does this end? If we'll listen to the secular scholars about the canonization, will we listen to these same scholars about the historicity of the Bible? Will we listen to them about miracles or whatever? Of course, scholars don't have anything to say about miracles, but that's the worry, right? And I think that's more what's going on. Don't you agree? Mm. Yeah. And I mean, of course, I have a hard time with with that because it's, for one, I mean, why are we assuming that these are all secular scholars who are coming to these conclusions? Mm-hmm. I mean, no, of course they're you know, not. Again, yeah. you can go back to this. I mean, I'm not, I'm not pushing back on you. I'm pushing yeah, back yeah. on what you're um, suggesting there, but 
or they're Christians, yeah, but they're the wrong kind that will eventually leave the faith and, le- and lead a bunch of people astray on their way out. Yeah. Oh, and that's, I mean, even the way that, you know, you were phrasing that and what you were just phrasing before of like, they're you know, the wrong kind that will lead you astray. Like there's such an attitude of if, if your journey doesn't lead you back to some orthodox form of Christianity, then you did it wrong. And the reality is you cannot have a journey with a predetermined destination. I know. <laughs> there are so many people out there right now who are trying to control deconstruction, right? As the, as oh, the yeah. term and the, the movement has grown, you've seen this a lot. I mean, for a while, when we started the show, I'm sure when you started your show, it was kind of the wild west, right? For like, I mean, <laughs> deconstruction what, wasn't really a term even. Yeah. Like, it wasn't yeah. like this hot topic now, you know, the gospel coalitions of the world, the desiring gods of the world had not gotten a hold of it yet. And now they need to have a response, right? So like, they have to have their response to deconstruction, their reasons why people are deconstructing. Yeah, there's a cottage industry. And it ultimately does come down to, you know, your journey is not legitimate uh, if it doesn't bring you back. Anytime someone uses the phrase, sound biblical blank, <laughs> that, is a, that is an indicator that they have an approved destination, um, and you said, oh, if it doesn't bring you back to Christian orthodoxy, I actually think that you're being a little generous. It's our denomination's understanding of a, of Christian orthodoxy. The That's orthodox <laughs> would not be included. <laughs> they have it in their yeah. name. Certainly not Catholics. You know, in a lot, not everybody. Some some of these people who are are worried about people leaving the faith are are quite ecumenical. And, and oh, you know, yeah. some of the worries are founded and, and a lot of them are unfounded. And, you know, like we do lose something if we cut everything off. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't. That might be what we need to do for healing, for our particular situation, whatever. But I was thinking when you were talking about your mom reading you the Bible, you know, I don't know all the various potential traumas and negative experiences that you've had around your faith, Shelby. But man, from like a developmental perspective, you could do a hell of a lot worse than memorizing the Gospels as a kid. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, what an incredible preparation to become a moral agent in the world as you grow up, to have Mm -hmm. the Sermon on the Mount and a community that reinforces to some degree the Sermon on the Mount. Like, And then, of course, we can imagine much better and, and worse actual communities that do that or don't do that. And maybe they throw that all out for Paul and a bunch of toxic patriarchy. But, you know, having that, having those words sort of etched on your heart from the beginning, like you could do a lot worse. I mean, with, with our kids, we've kind of recognized a bit of a, a vacuum there. Yeah. And same. we don't want to assume that Christianity is the only way to fill that vacuum, to fill that void. But, but it's our it's, it's our way. It's what we know, yeah. right? It's our yeah. it's our tradition. And we both had really wonderful experiences growing up. Um, I know a lot of people have you know some horrific sure. stories and traumas and abuse. And we just the communities we were in, we didn't really have that. I think it was in a lot of ways what it was supposed to be. It was the people who you know bring you casseroles and yeah. who organize outreach and and we yeah we want that for for our kids too. And I mean we've we. Ended up going back to church for, hopefully that's maybe comforting for anyone who's been listening to me being <laughs> incredibly heretical and insane and questioning everything. But like, we go to church because, uh, I mean, it, it's a it's a pretty cool church, but 
<laughs> we, we, cause we do want, like there's tradition. And I mean, like you're saying, there's something so valuable to tradition, wisdom, tradition, or just any tradition that's passed down from generation to generation. And I mean, we all the time with our kids are say, okay, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah. Th- we're thinking about painting it on the wall. <laughs> that's a very evangelical thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> I almost could. I could just go to Hobby Lobby and pick one up, probably. Yeah, you don't have to paint it. You find find their Etsy. I I sometimes ask myself, and my wife and I have talked about this. Like, okay, if we're not going to raise him Christian, what are the chances, realistically, that whatever we replace that with will be better? For like, and on what evidence will we think it will be better? That's a really hard question to answer. Like what what'll end up happening is whatever we raise him with is actually going to be pretty thoroughly Christian even if there isn't yeah. a lot of like overt stuff there. And so that's that's not quite a true uh decision, right? That's not the real choice we're making. But I like the way that that question sets up the stakes and a sort of a probabilistic lens and I like the wisdom tradition sort of tie in with all of that. And that's why I like that question so much of the, of the wisdom tradition thing. Like we just, we have such an opportunity to do this differently and not to use a cliche that probably all deconstruction, deconstructing people hate, but like throwing out the baby with the bathwater is a really big temptation. And, you know, at this point I, I think people are more than justified to do that if they feel they need to. But I mean, there are other ways to do Christianity, like even from, the very beginning, like maybe like from the very beginning, there were other ways to do Christianity. And the one that's made it to 2022, 23, whenever this episode comes out is not like, just because it's here doesn't mean it was the best way. doesn't mean it's the only way. Mm-hmm. And hopefully this conversation about canonization, like even the Bible is not something that has to be the way it is. Like it's not anti-Christian to say, I don't want my kids to read first and second Timothy because it talks about women not being leaders in church. Like your kids don't need to read first and second Timothy. And there's nothing heretical about that. Like those those texts didn't exist when Jesus was was around. <laughs> I love it. I love thinking about things like that. Yeah. But all scripture is God breathed. He was writing about the Old Testament. I know, but he's also writing about the New Testament. How do you know that? Because we all agree that he was also talking about the New Testament. Yeah, I mean it's like but you just get in these entrenched habits. I want to just say to anyone out there that, I mean, I, I didn't go for a while. After I left, you know, I wasn't a pastor anymore. I wasn't leading community groups. wasn't, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. I just needed to, I didn't know what I believed about anything. <laughs> I needed a break and I didn't go, you know, for a long time. And even now, I mean, we, the church, like we said, the church we go to is basically a church full of people who don't want to go to church because they don't know what to do with it. They don't even know what this is, which is a very weird experience, but you know, that's, that's kind of the thing we needed. Um, so it's very loose. It's not, you know, it doesn't really resemble the type of churches that we had been a part of, but we're trying to get, get to the, the canopy level or whatever, like get to the, above the trees. And like, there's all these trees in the forest and there's many, many to climb. I mean, this sounds totally heretical, right? But like this, no, there's no getting around it. Like Christianity is the the tree that I am climbing. Like that is, yeah. I'm going to have doubts and 
uncertainties about like what, like who was Jesus? Like we just had a conversation about that, right? Like was Jesus God? Like sometimes I think that and sometimes I'm like, I don't know. Like what is the Bible, right? Like all these things, but this is still the tree I'm climbing. You can't really get away from that. Even if I like don't go to church for a long time or like not sure, yeah. like people, most people would not call me a Christian, right? Most Christians would not call me a Christian. Yeah, they don't it's probably you know, true they say the show. Too. Yeah should be called totally heretical, like all these things. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's the, it is the tree I'm climbing. It is my tradition. And we are, like you said, I love that. Like we are going to pass this on to our children, even if we're like, no, we're not doing Christianity in this household. Like you are, like you just are. Um, I mean, as Barbara Brown Taylor puts it, it's, it's like a language and we, everyone has a first language and it's your native language. And you could basically become fluent in another language and it'll still never be your first language. And yes. so, you know, you could raise your kids in Taoism, you could raise them in Buddhism, you know, those could, those might be just as good and maybe even better, but you'll never be able to be Taoist as fluently as you are able to be Christian. Yep. It's totally true. And I do like some of the branches on the Taoist tree. Uh, <laughs> one of the questions I have been asking myself recently about questions I have or topics I'm that feel important to me is like, is this the kind of question that I will die not knowing whether I know the answer to it? Mm -hmm. Either not knowing the answer because it is not the kind of thing we're going to know. Like intelligent life on another planet is something that I think probably exists from the math. But right. do I think that in my lifetime, I will be confident about any facts mm -hmm. about that civilization. No, probably in my lifetime, I will, I might happen to know things, but I won't know that I know them. I won't have confidence about it. So I could be a hobbyist if I want to, if that's a fun way for me to spend my time. But realistically, I'm not going to know that I know anything barring such a civilization changing their apparent way of dealing with us and like letting us know in some very obvious kind of a way, which has not happened yet. Depends on who you're talking to. I think there's some people in the South that think it has. But anyways. <laughs> well, I know, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> like take the Tom DeLong thing about their technology or whatever. Oh, they can bend space time and that's why yeah. we don't detect them. Okay. If that's true, then they've been watching us for 200,000 years, right? So why are they going to show up in the next 40? Probably not. We've had the bomb for 75 years. So if that didn't do it, I don't know what's going to do it now. It's not going to be cryptocurrency. So, you know, that's kind of one of those questions that for me falls in the camp of like, I might find this interesting, but I will probably never have confidence about it. And what's interesting to do is to consider which theological or religion oriented questions also fall in that category and which don't fall in that category. And some of them might still be worth wrestling with, even if you think I'll never know, but what's the wrestling like? Well, it's good. You know, it's, it grows me in wisdom. It grows me in experience. It involves me in community. Well, cool. Then, then just plan to wrestle with that kind of a thing. I I'm curious. That's a wide open table share prompt. I think that's what we were intended to do too, right? Like this whole, if this is our tradition, the Christian tradition, and if we're building on and we're like, <laughs> we're claiming the, the Jewish tradition behind that, like this idea of Midrash, right? Like, am I saying that right? Like this idea of like wrestling and 
you know, I think this, and then like you push back on that and this person has this other idea. And like, we've just, I feel like we've lost all that. Like we have set ourselves up to have the answers and not to ask these good questions and to have these discussions and debates and, you know, just conversation around these topics. Yeah. Rachel Held Evans put it really beautifully in um, her book, Inspired. Um, She said that Jews use scripture to start a conversation and Christians use scripture to end a conversation. And yeah, I hope that we can get back to a different way of engaging this where scripture is the, scripture can be, and I think would be better used to be the, the grounding of spiritual experiences, the context in which you can have spiritual conversations and personal awakenings and largely communal, you know, communal, I don't know, pushing forward to doing what you all believe that you should do to make the world better. Like scripture is supposed to aid us in that. It's not an end in and of itself. And it's just put together by other humans who believe that there were things they could do. And we got to get rid, I think, of this idea of certainty, right? Like, and I know a lot of people in the deconstruction world are okay with that, getting rid of certainty. But I know some aren't, right? And like, I think when I started my journey of like questioning everything and just moving away from a lot of the things I used to believe, like I grew up Baptist, right? Like I grew up Reformed, Baptist. We, you know, have an answer for everything, right? And so I just assumed like, okay, that was, that was, I was certain about all that stuff. Now I'm not, and I just got to wait. You know, I'm going to read, I'm going to listen, I'm going to watch, I'm going to do all this stuff, and I'm going to get that certainty back. A whole new direction. I knew it was going to be a new direction. I'm going to get that certainty back though, right? Like I'm going to feel those same things of like, no, I know the answer to that one. You, you brought up that one. I know the answer to that one. I got it. You know, it's a different than what I used to think, but like, I know the answer. And that never came back, at least not yet. I mean, this has That's only been, good. you know, five or six years right. at this point, but like that never came back. And I... I think that's that's just so that's such a such a better way to live, and I know that scares a lot of people out there yeah. that are listening, probably, and a lot of people from my past my past life or whatever. But like, that's such a much much better way to live. And uncertainty is not as it doesn't feel as essential as we believed it was growing up. You know, and we were kind of told that well, if you don't have this, and you're not you're going to have no no moral compass. You're going to basically oh, be a yeah. bad person. And right. and I think we all know that you just you know, you still are who you are. And I guess to your question about like, what are the things that you maybe aren't going to have answers or like, what are you okay potentially going to your grave? Not knowing. I mean, at this point I just have mostly peace knowing that I might, I might not really ever get more certain about anything than I am right now. Although, I mean, I do think that the, the prospect of death is still a little scary to me. I don't know. Some people are very okay with that. Oh, I am not at all okay with it. No, I'm terrified. uh, Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, it wouldn't be right for me to end an episode without bringing up Star Wars. So I think just having, I I mean, I honestly felt like the force as it's presented in Star Wars, like, I'm like, that feels like something I could, I could get on board with. I mean, not literally. Yeah. I'm not, I mean, I am a Jedi, but I'm not going to like actually join the religion of it. But like, I mean, that actually comes from Taoism. That's where George Lucas got the whole idea of of the force. And it's just that there is something that connects everything. And I mean, that's really, I think, what most religions are getting at. And that's even what in conversation with our daughter this week, I mean, she's asking like what God is basically. And it's like, God is, I I think God's in everything. And she's like, so am I God? 
I was like, I, I mean, yeah, kind of. And like, I, I am too. And I was like, wow, this is the most heretical thing I've ever said. <laughs> but, but I mean, I feel like it could go a long way with that. I recently fielded, can God come play with my toys? And I was like, well, God doesn't have a body. <laughs> That's, that, that was, he's two and a half. That was one yeah. we recently Aww. dealt with. Yeah. yeah. So great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for being here. So, just for people who want to dive into your feed, you do have this Canon mini series. And then the one before that was woman. And some of the stuff we've mm-hmm. talked about, you guys go into a lot more detail there. And mm-hmm. I would definitely recommend the show for people who enjoyed this and want to dig deeper. Um, I think you guys do a really good job putting it together. So, yeah. Well, thanks. This conversation has been awesome. Who knew that talking about canonization could t- take us to so many other other areas. It's the psychologist in training in me. I just can't. I, you know, I was never going to be able to stick with canonization no. talk entirely. And we shouldn't. So. Yeah, we shouldn't. No, I love this. Wisdom this tradition great. all the way. Well, thank you, Dan. 